HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wild Alaska Pollock, the fish of the future. Learn more and try a free sample at wildakpollock.com. Welcome to Meet in 3, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, HRN's Executive Director. Anyone who works in a restaurant will tell you, success depends on following a strict code of conduct. Sometimes the rules are clearly written down, and sometimes they're unspoken. But the underlying goal is usually the same, to avoid chaos, ensure food safety, and guarantee customer satisfaction. We understand the need for rules in restaurants, but right now there's a battle brewing over one particular regulation that concerns us. We'll have that report later on in the show. Now, Hannah Forden takes a look at the people responsible for enforcing the rules of food safety. In New York City restaurants, you would have a hard time finding a character more terror-inducing than the health inspector. I've seen Friday night dinner service grind to a swift and hunger-inducing halt when the health inspector walks through the door. But what's really going on here? We wanted to learn more about these food world enforcers. Food writer Priya Krishna recently published an in-depth look at the life of health inspectors for the New York Times food section. Like, no one loves when the health inspector comes. It's just sort of a relationship between the restaurateur and the health inspector that's sort of set up to be antagonistic. (laughs) Priya's piece in the Times opens with a restaurant owner fainting to the ground upon an inspector's arrival. This operatic tension is due in large part to the element of surprise. There's this uh, sort of like mysterious computer system, and the system auto-generates based on an algorithm which inspector is going to do which restaurants. And so an inspector on any given day gets a notification, like these are the restaurants you have to visit today, and they have to just visit those in that order. And it's sort of one of the reasons why health inspectors show up at inconvenient times is they're not really in control of their schedule either. They have to make all of their visits, and if that visit happens to fall during, like, 7 p.m. on a Saturday, then you just have to deal with it. Neither restaurant owners nor health inspectors have any control over who gets inspected when. In New York City, restaurants are given a letter grade based on the results of their inspection. Everyone hopes for an A grade and dreads getting a C. 
It all depends on how many violations are found. So there's two kinds of violations. The minor violations being like, there's not a lid on the trash can, or, you know, maybe something was placed below a pipe and there's potential drippage. And then there are the big ticket items like, we spotted vermin, or this food was kept out for too long, um, and things like that. And, you know, a few of the, the smaller violations aren't really that big of a deal, but the bigger violations are the things that, like, really raise the red flags. Restaurants are graded based on a point system. A handy document from nyc.gov called What to Expect When You're Inspected breaks it down. The more points you get, the worse your grade is. C grade means the restaurant was given 28 points. Critical violations feature nauseating descriptions like, quote, filth flies in dry storage area, and food being prepared by someone, quote, who has exposed, infected, cut, or burn on hand. Okay, I understand maybe why a restaurant gets a B. That feels okay to me, but like a C means there's like, there's something up in the kitchen. (laughs) There are a lot of rules and a definite air of mystery around the whole process. Even though the rules are objective, health inspectors have to be subjective to a certain extent, and it's sort of that certain level of unknowability of what an inspector is going to find and, you know, how they're going to dole out violations. But who are these feared rule keepers with the power to shut a restaurant down? They're not really like food lovers. They're not people who are in this because they love restaurants and they love food and they live and breathe this industry. To them, like, this is a job. They are very unemotional about it. And to a certain extent, like, you can't blame them. I sat in to a uh, food safety class, you know, where I learned that health inspectors were basically taught about the life or death consequences of not giving out a violation, which I thought was really funny, you know they would go from like smoked salmon not being to the right temperature to like a dead customer very quickly. They like sort of instill the fear of God in these inspectors of not writing things up when they see them. All that restaurants can do is follow the rules and be prepared for the inevitable inspection. Because in the end, that big blue A displayed in the front window of your favorite neighborhood spot is all but essential to the restaurant's survival. It's a brutal process. I definitely don't envy restaurants going through health inspections. But I guess it's also why when people get an A, they always Instagram about it, because it's like a real feat. (laughs) Health inspectors aren't the only ones holding our food up to very strict standards. Nina Medvinskaya visited a small midtown eatery to learn more about who determines whether food is kosher. Some of the strictest rules in the culinary world stem from the union of food and religion, and perhaps the most ordinance-based cuisine can be found in kosher kitchens. The meticulous standards of kosher cooking date back to biblical times, and the subtleties of this long-standing tradition have survived the oscillations of both time and place. And although today we can find that little you which symbolizes the Orthodox Union, stamped on many of our food products, there's a whole hierarchy involved in making a kitchen kosher. Kashut is a certification that actually guarantees the consumer that we are meeting the standards that they require. I mean, some of the rules have been extracted from actually the, the Bible, from, you know, from the Torah. That was David Donagrandi, 
co-owner and lead chef of Abaita, a small kosher dairy restaurant nestled by a Best Western in Midtown Manhattan. At first, when I stepped into the restaurant, it didn't seem that different from many other small Manhattan eateries. I was greeted with an open kitchen, bustling staff, and about 15 densely packed tables. But there was a particular staff member that struck me as distinct, a shy young man who served as the restaurant's mishgia. Mishgia, which is the name of the guy that actually does the work. So he's checking like all the vegetables. To check it means that there's no bags, cover bit, there is nothing that doesn't belong there. Abaita's mishgia, Rafael Mizrahi, spends his days checking all the kitchen's ingredients to ensure that they meet kosher standards. The work is so rigorous that he must examine every single leaf in a bag of greens. And if one of them has a bug on it, the whole package must be disposed of. And this sort of diligence goes towards all ingredients inhabiting the kitchen. He's checking the eggs. He's actually looking, you know, sometimes eggs, they have like a bit of like a blood. So that we will discard. We will not use it. It's not uncommon to hear a slightly disappointed exhale leaving Raphael's lips upon the discovery of yet another product that's failed to meet kosher standards. And even though David is the lead chef, if Raphael deems a food item unfit, it will be tossed without any objections. This makes for an unusual scene in a Manhattan restaurant, a shy 20-year-old dictating the kitchen standards to a humble veteran chef. I mean, there's like certain things that are, that are only done by the mishgia. Meaning that Raphael, that is here this morning, is the one that opened the physical restaurant. He has to open the physical restaurant. He opens all the refrigeration. The refrigerations are all locked, meaning there is somebody here when he's not present. They, they, they do not have any access to the, to the food. And the first light that goes out in the morning in the restaurant, the first light, meaning the first fire, is actually done by the Mishgia. The ethos of keeping kosher is to remove impurities. Vegetables have to be immaculately washed, and animals must be treated with utmost care and respect. In this sense, kosher food is on par with the eating clean movement. But unlike the intricacies of humane husbandry and organic agriculture, kosher cooking involves many nuanced rituals. Every time that we make the, the pizza dough, and they actually do a, they do a bracha, they do a blessing, and then they actually put it in the fire, right? They say that there is always a piece that is attached to it that is not positive. Although the notion that all kosher food must be blessed by a rabbi is actually just a myth, blessings are still part of the kosher ritual. As Chef David mentioned, after blessing the dough, which sits at the helm of the kosher food chain, a small piece of it must be thrown into the fire to rid a whole meal of the impurity inherent in all tangible things, and thus to essentially bless the entire kitchen. But I would say that in terms of like food, I think that kosher food... The way that it's checked, the way that it's looked at, is like one of the purest that you can find. And the, the amount of work that we put in, like sometimes on a piece of vegetables here, I've never seen that in a, in a non-kosher restaurant. Although maintaining a certified kosher kitchen demands scrupulosity and added expenses, David stresses that keeping kosher should never just be about blindly following rules. His eyes light up as he explains that the tradition is only worthwhile if those that abide by its standards find meaning in its value. And in this case, the value resides in purifying the body along with the soul. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. We'll return with a story about a potential new legal ruling that's causing controversy in the restaurant industry and beyond.
This episode is brought to you by Wild Alaska Pollock, the fish of the future. Wild Alaska Pollock is incredibly delicious, highly nutritious, and perpetually sustainable. Among the last frontier's many natural wonders, Wild Alaska Pollock just might be the state's best kept secret. This cousin to cod has lean, snowy white meat, delicate texture, and a mild flavor that makes it extremely versatile and tasty. Only Pollock caught in Alaskan waters by U.S. fishermen can be labeled Wild Alaska Pollock. Unlike other Pollock products, Wild Alaska Pollock is filleted and frozen just once within hours of being caught to preserve freshness, flavor, and texture. And now, food service professionals can try Wild Alaska Pollock for free. Request your sample at wildakpollock.com and discover the fish of the future. That's wildakpollock.com. Welcome back to Meet and Three. For our next story, Dylan Hoyer investigates why restaurant bathrooms have become a hot-button issue for human rights. The Trump administration is trying to redefine gender, and in the process, posing a grave threat to transgender rights. Efforts are underway to equate gender with sex under Title IX, the federal law that prohibits gender discrimination. If this transpires, only a strict gender binary determined by one's genitals at birth would be acknowledged under this law. That would affect 1.4 million Americans who identify with a gender other than the one they were assigned at birth. The federal departments tasked with enforcing Title IX including the Departments of Justice, Education, Labor, and Health and Human Services, would no longer uphold the rights or even recognize the identities of transgender and gender nonconforming individuals. It's unconscionable that the federal government is talking about stripping civil rights protections away from a group of people. And personally, as a transgender person, it's upsetting and scary to me. That is Ezra Sukor. He's an attorney with the New York City Commission on Human Rights. He investigates a wide range of discrimination complaints, but one area of private life has overtaken the public debate on transgender rights. Bathrooms have become a battleground. Really, access to restrooms is just a part of full, equitable access to workplaces or to public spaces. Symbols designating men's and women's greet us at almost every bathroom door. But these rules are being widely contested. The hospitality industry is one focal point of this fight, given how many of us rely upon it. 50% of American adults have worked in the restaurant industry at some point in their lives, and we've all wandered into a cafe or coffee shop in search of a bathroom. Claudia Costa is a defense lawyer who specializes in workplace discrimination. This is her advice to establishments in the service industry. You're a business. You want everybody to come there. Everybody's money is green. And so how do you make that establishment as welcoming as possible to everyone? I mean, it is, after all, the hospitality industry, so we should be as hospitable as possible. If I'm going to go to a restaurant, I need to be able to spend a certain amount of time there, and I need to be able to attend to my biological needs while there. And the same holds true even more so from an employee perspective, right? If you can't use the restroom in your workplace, being there for five hours, six, seven, eight, or longer shift is just not feasible. 
Where Ezra works in New York City, transgender people do have the right to use the bathroom that corresponds with their gender identity. City law is still here. The City Commission on Human Rights is still a venue where people can turn if they face discrimination. We have the right to use the single-sex facility that corresponds to our gender identity, no questions asked, just like cis people are usually able to. 18 states, the District of Columbia, and over 200 cities have passed laws prohibiting discrimination against transgender people. But the majority of cities and states do not have protections in place to safeguard transgender rights if they are eradicated at the federal level. There is a lot of conflict between the federal, state, and local laws. So it's very interesting from a business perspective how to handle the situation. Amidst varied and shifting civil rights laws, bathroom policies are often determined on a case-by-case basis by restaurant owners. And there is a lot of disagreement. I have been met with just reluctance and pushback. I am not changing my business. I am not going to create another bathroom. And I found that the best way to approach that is to perhaps appeal to their sense of business. I understand that in a small business, it may be very difficult to create a separate bathroom, but you need to think about the cost of the drywall to create separate individual stalls, as opposed to the cost of bad publicity or the cost of a potential lawsuit. But should trans-inclusive policies be a choice or an obligation? The legal responsibility to make sure that people aren't singled out and mistreated because of who they are is a core function that should fall at all levels of government. The responsibility exists at the federal level, whatever the current administration's interpretation is. Nonetheless, the Trump administration will likely move forward in its efforts to redefine gender, leaving individual businesses to determine their own role and responsibility in protecting transgender rights. Businesses can also go above and beyond to to promote inclusion. Bathrooms may be the biggest topic of debate when it comes to transgender rights, but creating an inclusive work environment for transgender employees will require addressing various issues in the hospitality industry. Compared to other industries, disproportionately few restaurant workers are offered health care by their employers. And for transgender individuals, the effects of this are intensified. 25% of transgender people have reportedly struggled to have the costs of their health care covered. This includes routine care, as well as the care associated with gender confirmation surgery. Claudia speaks to how businesses can promote inclusive healthcare policies. When we advise companies that want to revise a handbook, we strongly suggest gender-neutral terms in there. We advise them that there are some cases out there concerning the making of healthcare available to all employees. And it could be seen as discrimination because of that person being transgender. With greater changes to federal civil rights protections looming, why does public discourse turn to bathrooms again and again? Here in New York, we've had a law that protects those rights on the books for over 15 years at this point. Um, and it's going just fine. People people still pick the restroom that best, best fits who they are and go about their business. Um, and 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 life goes on in the city. And having that protection is, you know, it's on the one hand, not a big deal. And on the other hand, it's really important to those of us who would otherwise be singled out. Rules about who can use the bathroom do more than tell us which stalls to enter. They dictate who can go through daily life without being questioned or harassed. All civil rights issues have basically, uh, at one point or another, revolved around the bathroom. 
if you think back, there were segregated bathrooms. There was a time、um, in this country where women didn't have public bathrooms they could use. Just as those were civil rights and individual rights issues that were fought, this is the next step: transgender issues. To learn more about transgender rights in your state, you can visit lgbtmap.org. Finally, we wanted to mention a food rule we get asked about all the time at HRN: When are you supposed to eat oysters? You might have heard the advice that you should only eat oysters in months with the letter R. Kathy Irway, host of HRN's Eat Your Words, asked Jeremy Sewell, the co-author of Oysters: A Celebration in the Raw, to confirm or deny. Where that came from is that's when the water starts to get warm, and when the water gets to a certain temperature, wild oysters spawn. And when they're spawning, they're still okay to eat, but they're not very—they're really mushy. You know, all of their Energy and everything is going into surviving and spawning, and so they don't taste great. And、um, that's、uh-huh. where it came from. But that is—that's really not the case anymore. You know, they've、uh, most oysters consumed are not、uh, wild, aquaculture farmed,、yeah. and they're、mm-hmm. not wild. So a lot of people have controlled the environment or bred the oyster that that doesn't happen. So it's,、yeah. it's great to eat oysters all year long. Hey, but it's really interesting to know more about the life cycle of the oyster because it sounds like they sort of they eat a lot to hibernate for the winter, so they're a little bit more tasty in the winter. Is that the idea? Well, you know, they're always they kind of hibernate in the winter a little bit.、Mm-hmm. They they when the water gets really cold, they don't feed on the plankton as much. But yeah, they they plump up in the in the spring when they start. We call it pumping. You know, they they kind of open up and they're filtering water and.、Um, Eating the kind of the natural stuff that's in the water, the plankton, and then throughout the spring and summer they really、uh, plump up, and then in the fall as well. So, you know, this is a great. It really depends on, you know, where you're eating oysters, whether、uh-huh. it's Gulf oysters, West Coast, East Coast. You know, the different times of year that oysters have different qualities, but、uh, you know, Northeast in the fall is a great time to eat oysters. Actually, we believe the very best time to eat oysters this year. Is December third, the night of our Winter in the Garden gala. Stay tuned after the credits for details. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Special thanks to Dylan Hoyer and Nina Medvinskaya for their reporting. We'll be back next week with an episode that our amazing interns are putting together about food and danger. Meat and Three is produced by Liza Ham, Hannah Forden, Kat Johnson, and me, Katie Mosman Wadler. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson, with additional engineering by Amanda Wang. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. Meat and Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage_radio. Have you heard? It's party time. Monday, December third is Winter in the Garden, Heritage Radio Network's second annual year-end gala at the Brooklyn Botanic Gardens Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe. Join HRN staff, 
hosts, members, and some very talented chefs and bartenders for a delicious evening that will kick off the holiday season and support our end-of-year fundraising drive. The evening will begin with a VIP hour, complete with bubbles and oysters. Then, all of our guests will work their way around two spacious rooms filled with food stations and bars, sampling fare from some of our favorite chefs. Sip on your choice of cocktails, beer, wine, sake, and cider while bidding on exclusive silent auction items. 2019 is our 10th anniversary, so whether you've been a member since Roberta's first opened, or if you just discovered your new favorite food podcast, please consider supporting us with a ticket purchase so we can start the year on solid ground. We'd love to see you at the Garden. So join us on December 3rd. For more information and to purchase tickets, go to heritageradionetwork.org slash gala. <laughs>